Friends, let us turn in the Word of God for our instruction this evening. We turn, first of all, to the Epistle to the Romans and the chapter 6. The Epistle to the Romans and the 6th chapter. Reading the first 10 verses there, and then we turn once again in the New Testament for the second reading. The Epistle to the Romans, the 6th chapter, verse 1 to the verse 10. This is the Word of the Lord. Come, let us hear God's holy and precious word this evening. The Lord help us, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive his word. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Amen. And we turn now to First Peter chapter 3, the epistle of First Peter chapter 3, and the commencing at the verse 1. Hear the word of God. Likewise, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, Love us, brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, 
not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. He that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, but which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient. And once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is in the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Amen. May the Lord bless that public reading of his most precious, infallible, inerrant and sacred word. Dear friends, all to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never-dying souls here this night. Let us pray. Let us draw near. Well, dear congregation, I invite you now to please turn your prayerful attention to that second reading that I read to you in your hearing there in 1 Peter chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ was seen by Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of his majesty there upon the holy mount. Peter was a man that was born again. And Peter was a man that was led by the Spirit of God to pen these words, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And I take for my text the words that we find in the 21st verse of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3 and the verse 21, speaking of baptism. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, Let me say on the outset, friends, the new birth shows itself by a new life, a new life of principled obedience to God. If you just turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and the 16th chapter, these well-known words, these words of the Lord Jesus Christ addressing his disciples, he is about to ascend into heaven, and he says in the 16th verse, of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. He says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Baptism does not save you. But it is the answer, as we have read in our text, of a good conscience, because it is what God commands. And what God commands, all of God's people who are born again live a new life in principled obedience to His commandments. We cannot say we're a Christian if we do not obey the Word of God. It is simply inconsistent. There is no such thing as a Christian who as a general tenor of life does not obey God's Commandments, Because God has said that in the New Covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31, that He writes His laws upon His children's hearts. Everyone in that New Covenant has a heart to serve God. And baptism really pictures what God has done in the life of somebody. It is a commandment. But it is also, as we read here, look at the verse 21, it is called the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, people in this world, if you're not saved, I'm sorry to say, and to offend you, you do not have a good conscience toward God. How do I know this? Because if you turn to Romans chapter 2, and you read in the verse 14 and 15 there, it is plain, it is explicit, that the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of the Gentiles and those who are not saved, those who do not know the gospel of God's saving grace in their lives, in their hearts, the law of God is written upon their hearts, and when they go to sin, what happens? The conscience suffers accusation. Notice verse 14. I'll read from verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, now notice, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. You see, people know all kinds of things. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to lie. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to bear false witness. This is why they get mighty ashamed and they blush. Because they do not have a conscience. And man is made 
I say they do not have a good conscience. They have a conscience, but it's not a good conscience. Conscience tries to shove everything under the carpet. But you know, friends, man knows that there is a God in heaven. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God has revealed it to them. How, Paul? By the things that he has made. That's what he says. These people, though they deny God. Verse 19, but that which may may be known of God is manifest in them. Romans 1.19, for God has showed it unto them. How? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. And that's how I can say an authority of God's word. The unsaved people do not have a good conscience. They may say, I have a good conscience, but they know in their heart of hearts that they have sinned against a holy God. And let me say, my friend, God's word, not what I say, is Lord of the conscience. And God's moral law is written upon every fiber of your being. You know certain things are wrong. You can go to the most distant tribe and you ask them, is it wrong to murder? Is it wrong to steal? Is it wrong to lie? And they'll tell you, yes, of course it is. But why do they do it? Because they are sinners. And we come into this world born in sin, shapen in iniquity. And we live our lives, as it were, pretending there is no God. We'll never have to answer to him. And this is why people have nightmares. They have a pang of conscience at times. And they hate to sit under sermons, especially where the word S-I-N is spoken of. Sin. Oh, don't speak to me about sin. Don't speak to me about God's wrath. My dear friend, the kindest thing that I can do here tonight is to speak to you about sin. And to speak to you about the conscience. Now, just in light of this passage, if you just turn back there with me to 1 Peter, I want you to notice certain features of this chapter. One of the striking things of this chapter, we could say there are two subjects. As we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, the word subjection and the word conscience comes up. These two words are very common in this chapter. It begins here with wives, likewise ye wives be in subjection unto your own husbands. Is this a New Testament thing? Is this an Old Testament thing? Friends, this was what God had put in place even before the fall. God had an order of this world. God made Adam Adam neglected his responsibility. Eve listened to Satan. Sin came into the world and look at the mess we're in. Why? Because there was no subjection, first of all, to God. No subjection to Adam. And then husbands must not negate their responsibilities to wives and so on. Wives here to be chaste, it says there, your chaste conversation. Now the word is the word conversari in the Latin. It means way of life. You must have a humble way of life, lady. And when the apostle here is exhorting ladies to submit to their husbands, he's not saying, ladies, you're any less. 
He's saying God has made you different. We're all made in the image of God, but with different responsibilities, and God is a God of order. But it is because man has come away from his creator But there are problems, and sin has come into the world. And so you see the word subjection here. And uh, he speaks here of those who have a good conscience, ladies who have a good conscience, and they know certain things are right. And How is it that a humble lady can even offend a lady who is not humble, just by her quiet demeanor? She troubles the conscience of that woman. Oh, yes. Husbands, likewise, dwell with your wives to knowledge. The husband has a responsibility. He must give honor to the wife as the weaker vessel. He's not saying women are less. He's saying they're more fragile. They have a different temperament and so on. And Well, you're heirs to the grace of life together. You pray to God, your prayers be not hindered, therefore you must dwell at peace with your wife, be at harmony. This is all God's design, dear friends, for the family and for the Christian life. Look at the world that we live in, what a mess society is. You walk past so many houses today, they're shouting, there is children hurling abuse and vile language at their own parents. The world is in a mess. Why? Because men have strayed from their God, from their Creator. But he says here, Christians, you're, you're, to, you're to live differently. And then there is even a word to those who are servants. Uh, obey your masters, even if they are froward, even if they are crooked. Why? Because you're different. You serve, you, you honor your masters. For therein are you called even to suffer, even as Christ suffered. Look, it is an unfair world. But you remember this world is passing away. Why? Because it is a world that is not subject to God. So key words that come out from this passage. Subjection and conscience. And you, you do well if you would love life, verse 10, and see good days, refrain your tongue from evil. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. As you live, you live before God. Now the Christian, as I said, has a new life. And this is really what baptism pictures. The old life has passed. Our dear brother, we have seen a change in his life. And he has told us of the changes of his life. And we believe it. We've seen it. It's the real deal. It's a real work of God. And if that's the case, he will have a good conscience toward God. Because baptism is a picture of what God has done. And why would you ever be ashamed before the world to own Jesus Christ and to say, God has changed me. The old Ken is gone. This is who I am now in Jesus Christ. I'm his. I have a good conscience. God has commanded me to be baptized. doesn't change my heart, but it it shows what God has done to my heart and to my life. Now, there are many things here, but first of all, verse 13 and following. 
And he, who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? You see what the apostle is saying? God looks over all his people. God will honor those that honor him in this life. What is Peter saying here? God is sovereign. If you do good, what can death even do if somebody even puts you to death? Can a man ultimately harm you? People may persecute you. Christians have been persecuted. But who ultimately can harm you? You have a good conscience toward God. You, you live toward Him. You honor Him. But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Why? Remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are ye. He said, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. Now we're coming and we're drawing here to the text, but sanctify the Lord God, verse 15, in your hearts. That is, make him special. Make him your all. To sanctify means to set him apart. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. You be ready to give your testimony. I belong to Jesus Christ. He has made me to differ in this world. The reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. You don't speak proudly. You say, God has done this. You don't say, oh, I decided to follow Jesus. You say, no. He decided to save me so that I do follow him. So that I walk in newness of life. Yes, I chose him because he chose me first. You speak meekly. You speak of the grace of God. And you speak well of Christ. Now notice, you do all of this. Notice verse 16. Here's the word again. Having a good conscience. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, if any man is ever ashamed of his son, shall the Son of Man be ashamed of his kind. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed, but falsely accuse your good conversation or way of life in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that it is for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now notice, for because Christ also hath once suffered for sins, you suffer in this world against two ungodly people. who were troubled in their own conscience because of your life as you honor God. But what an honor it is to suffer for Christ. And he says, you continue on in the same way, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Think of it, Christ left his heavenly throne. He left the realms of glory. He who created the heavens and the earth came into this sinful world to live and to die for his people. Why? Ultimately to bring us to God. To suffer in his body. As Peter says elsewhere, bearing our sins in his own body, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now you notice... And here's a warning, my unconverted friends this evening, as we bring you the gospel very simply, 
And I want you to notice a verse that is greatly misunderstood. Here in verse 18, he's speaking of Christ. And then in verse 19, continuing to speak of Christ, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. That's where they are. He never preached to them in prison, but when did he preach to them? These spirits who were sometimes obedient during the days of Noah. Christ preached through Noah to the spirits of men that are now in prison. Some people have very bizarrely imagined that Christ somehow has gone to purgatory and preached to the spirits of men in purgatory. My friends, there's no such place as purgatory. But those who lived disobediently in the days of Noah, as we are told, Noah preached. Noah, what was he? He was a preacher of righteousness. And what did that do? That troubled the conscience of the people. Think of it as Noah was building the ark. What was he saying? The ark, in fact, was a sermon in itself. Every plank upon that ark was a warning that God is coming in judgment. Why? Because God is angry with sinners. The wages of sin is death. Noah spent 120 years preaching. And people scoffed at him, mocked at him. Where's the rain, Noah? But what did God do? He opened up the fountains of the deep. And the heavens opened. The deep crossed the layers containing water underneath were opened up and came out of nowhere. And God deluged the whole earth. And millions of people perished. Why? Because they did not live to God. And they lived with a guilty conscience. Every day. We're told there in Genesis 6 that it grieved the heart of God that he had man made man. He looked down and saw that none were doing right. Men were going on in their own ways in sin. Carrying on day after day, living to themselves, despite their conscience. You know, it was, if you study the book of Genesis and the early chapters there, chapter 5, the book of Adam it's called, just ten generations. And there were those, even still, who knew Adam in the day of the flood. Some of his relatives, not long. Men lived long days in those days. And God promised that there would come a flood, that there would come a deluge, that God would destroy man off the face of the earth. 
Noah preached by the Spirit of Christ to those who are now reserved. The Bible speaks of a place of those who were reserved in a place of damnation, awaiting that final day. Why? Because God is holy, my friends. What saved Noah? The ark. Noah was no different to other men. Yes, he was in some ways different, but Noah was still a sinner. When God looks at sin, he sees all have sinned. Noah, though we are told, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that is what makes a sinner different, a saved sinner to those in this world. They find grace in the eyes of the Lord. They look to Christ and they find refuge in him. Why? Because he came to live the life that his people didn't live. How do I know this? Well, we're told here, as we notice the passage, comparing here God's destruction in the days of Noah and just the eight souls that were saved by water. By water. Think of it. Noah was saved by water. We often think of him being saved by the ark, but it was the ark that floated upon the water. But I want you to think of this. There is the water of Christ's death by which we are saved. You say, what do you mean? Remember the Lord Jesus said to his disciples that he would have to undergo another baptism. Do you remember what he said? Are you able to be baptized with a baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And the disciples said, yes, we are, Lord, but not so. The water. The real baptism that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced, my friends, was that on the cross. And so just as here we read, eight souls were saved by water. As I said, we often think of Noah being saved by the ark and his family, but it was actually the water, and it was the water that separated the old world from the new world. Wasn't it? It was the water. Because without that water, there would still be the old world. And without the baptism of the cross, there could be no possible way that sinners could ever enter into the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because justice had to be met at the baptismal cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he would completely take away all the wrath of an almighty God. That's why he said to his disciples, are you able to be baptized with a baptism that I'm about to be baptized? No ways. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did is he went through a great flood a great water. It was not so much the nails. It was not so much the sword. It was not so much the physical anguish, but the separation 
from the Father for whom he knew from all eternity. And thus he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he had to be forsaken. God spared not his only begotten Son. And you know, what was he doing? Why was he, first of all, physically baptized? You remember he came to John in the Jordan. And John was baptizing. It was a baptism of repentance, wasn't it? And then uh, he came to John. And John said, no, no, I must be baptized. He said, no. All righteousness must be fulfilled. So what was Christ doing in his baptism? My friends, he is the federal head, the representative of all his people. As he was going down in the water, it was a picture of what he would do for his people. Going down, as it were, as the last Adam into the water. Taking the place of all of his people. And dying with them. And for them. And suffering a death that none of us could ever experience. For it would take an eternity. An eternity, my dear friends. To extinguish God's wrath. And Christ took it all away. This is why Paul says, if we are Christians, effectively he's saying we belong to a new race. There are two races. There's Adam's race. And there's the second Adam's race. This is why he is called the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. How is Jesus Christ called, as Isaiah 9 says, unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, child is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Because our first father, Adam, is dead. But we have a new father. In that sense that Jesus Christ is our federal head. And we're never alone. You know, when the Lord saves us, he comes to live in our hearts. Really, by his Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, He that hath not the Spirit of Christ is none of his. But if we are born again and born of the Spirit, and we have experienced that change of heart, that conviction of sin, I don't want my old life, I don't want to live and the ways I used to live, the life I now live, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God that loved me and gave himself for me. I want to live for him. And why would I ever be ashamed of owning him in this world? I'm buried with Christ. The old person is gone. Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What grace, Paul? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not? He says, don't you understand that so many of us as were baptized into 
Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. When he died, he died as their representative. But in time, in time when the gospel comes, Ephesians 2.17, Paul says to the Ephesians, he came preaching to you. Christ, by his Spirit, came preaching to you. You notice there with me? But we know Jesus Christ never, as far as we know, ever went to Ephesus. But he says in Ephesians 2, the verse 17, he says, here concerning Jesus Christ, reading from verse 16, the work of Christ. I'll read from verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now notice, and came and preached peace to you. Just as Christ preached by the Spirit through Noah, even to disobedient souls who are now, we're told, in prison. But he came and preached to you. And when he came and he preached to you, if you're saved, you've been changed. And God has begun a good work. The Spirit of God, what does it do when it comes to you? It quickens you. Paul says, He was once a Pharisee. But he said, when the Lord came, truly came, I came under conviction of sin. The Lord came, sin revived, and I died. I saw myself as a dead man with no hope. I saw that I was a breaker of the law. And that's when he saw he needed Christ who came under the law for Paul. And as he lived under the law, my friend, there was only one man that ever lived perfectly under the law of God, not you. As you live in this world, as people in the ancient world of Noah, they didn't have a good conscience. And friends, nobody in their lives has a good conscience toward obeying God's precepts and his laws. Nobody. Has anybody here ever kept God's law perfectly? Well, there was a rich young ruler that came to the Lord Jesus, and he ran to him, and he said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? You see, it's all about what people do. He said, Go and sell your goods and give to the poor. Really? He couldn't do it. His money and his goods were his God. He had never kept the law. He said he had kept the law all of his life. And you know what? The Lord said, go, go and sell all your goods. And it says the man went away sad, grieved in his heart. But let me say this. When God saves somebody, Christ takes the throne of the heart. And we say, all is for you, Lord. He changes the heart. 
Peter, James and John were there and they said, Lord, who can be saved? He said, well, with man it's impossible. It's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than it is. Well, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, what is impossible for man is possible for God because he changes the heart. He renews the will, changes the affections. The person is new. They're awakened to the fact that they weren't living to God, that they were alive to sin. Sin is what made them tick. But now what makes the Christian tick is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul says it's the love of Christ that constrains us. We love him because he first loved us. It's the love of God that changes our hearts. and The Spirit of God that comes to work in us, to work grace. That's a new man. It's not a perfect man. It is a man that wrestles and strives against sin. But it is a man that has the grace of God in him. And God is at work. And he says, how can I live to sin any longer? If this is what it cost my Savior, that he had to come into this world and he had to suffer and die, how can I live to my sin any longer? And then when he goes to sin, it's like, I've used this illustration before. It's like, if we could imagine a dog. Peter uses this illustration. He says, it, the dog, it goes back to the vomit. Uh, the, the sow or the pig, it goes back to the wallow in the mire. That's somebody that's not converted. But you see, for the Christian, now when he sins... There's a different attitude. When he goes to sin and he commits sin, it's like the pig sticking its face and chomping on all that vile slop. And then all of a sudden he realizes he's a man. How can I eat this filth any longer? My sin, it now disgusts me. The things that once entertained me, I hate, because I realize not only how ugly sin is, but how much my holy God hates sin, and I don't want to live to sin anymore. I want to live to Christ. That's a Christian. How can we continue in sin? Well, you won't if you have Christ in you, because what he does by his word is he will come and he will trouble you in your sin. He will trouble the conscience. Just like David was troubled in his conscience with his adultery. He says, for the roaring all the day, I cried. And then you read that Psalm 51. David said, Lord, remove not thy spirit from me. He was broken over his sin. And this is the work that God does, my friends, in salvation. A Christian is not somehow a puppet. Yes, he's a new man. In a sense, the old is still there. But the Spirit of Christ is in him now, working, causing that man to hate sin, to love righteousness, and to love the ways of the Lord, to love cleanness and a new life. The Christian has begun to find new pleasures. His greatest pleasure is not 
the football on a Sunday afternoon. But it's to sing praise to God in church. To thank God for saving him and saving her. You have a conscience, friend. God is holy. And there are so many things that he says are wrong in his word. And I often hear so many unbelievers say, well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. It's not my opinion, my friend. God hates sin. And what he does through his son is he works righteousness in his people. They are not saved by that righteousness, but they are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But in the life now, there is a newness of life. And they walk in newness of life. And what is baptism? You're simply saying, this is what God has done in me. This is what he commands, that I own him before the world, that I died, but I now live to Christ. It's an answer of a good conscience, because God commands it. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, Whosoever has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. The true person that has been baptized into Christ has put on Jesus Christ. And he's put off sin. And he knows he's going to heaven. He's been saved by the Jordan of the cross. That water, just as they were saved by, it says there, saved by the water, saved, separated from a lost world. The Christian is saved from this world, my friend, that Peter says is going to perish one day. You know what divides this world from the world to come? One thing, the cross. That is what Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17. And God has given us assurance that he is coming to judge the world in righteousness by the man that is he appointed. How, Paul? How? Will you notice there? Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given them assurance unto all men, and that he raised him from the dead. My friend, he came out of that Jordan of death. And you know what? The empty tomb. Christ is not in the water. The sure evidence that he's coming in judgment. Just as the water came in the days of Noah, judgment came. But Christ's empty tomb tells me and tells you that there's a day of judgment. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he has raised him from the dead. Let me say, friend, as I close, it is only those who are dead to sin and alive to Christ will enter his glory. But we can say it was not of us. 
we found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just as Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Who does he come to? Unworthy sinners. Terribly unworthy sinners. Paul said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Because I persecuted the church. My friend, don't look inside yourself to find some merit toward God. All the merits are in Jesus Christ. God says, look unto me. Don't look at your heart. Don't look at yourself. All you will find is a sinner. But you look to Jesus Christ, who saves sinners. Amen.